Welcome to episode 1521 of Effectively Wild, a baseball podcast from Fangraphs, presented by our Patreon supporters. I am Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer, joined by Sam Miller of ESPN. Hello, Sam. Hey. And we are joined by our partner, Meg Rowley of Fangraphs. Hello, Meg. Hello. You are joining us for the beginning of today's episode for a little PSA, which will not be a surprise to anyone who has read Fangraphs today or followed us on Twitter and seen the plea that Fangraphs put out. But turns out, pandemic, not great for business. It is not great for business. Turns out when there's no baseball and no you know, return date on the horizon that people decide to watch Tiger King. So, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> can you just start blogging about Tiger King? Maybe <laughs> have you considered it, Ben? I'm not going to lie to you. There might be <laughs> some Tiger King content coming to Fangrass <laughs> Audio in the near future. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever we have to do. Whatever we have to do. But yeah, the the drop off that we have seen in traffic since the announcement that opening day would be postponed has been pretty dramatic. And like a lot of sports media companies, we depend on site traffic to generate revenue, and so the decline in revenue and in projected revenue has been correspondingly severe. And we've taken some steps internally to try to sort of staunch the bleeding. We were very sad to essentially let go of most of our contributing writers and temporarily shutter the hardball times. All of the full-time staff who are remaining have taken a pay cut But now we're asking for our readers to help us out. The best way to support Fangraphs in addition to reading the site every day, which for the people who have sort of responded to this with their own economic troubles, we know this is a really hard time for people and a bad time to be asking for help. Reading the site does make a difference, right? Being there every day to read our work and participate in chats and listen to podcasts makes a difference. So, Especially if you turn off your ad blocker. Especially if you turn off your ad blocker. So if you're grappling with the fallout from this horrible pandemic yourself and aren't in a position to become a member, we totally get that. We hope you and your family are safe and healthy and appreciate you coming to the site every day and letting us distract you even temporarily from those troubles. But for those folks who are in a position where they can help the site, we would really appreciate you guys considering a Fangraphs membership, whether it's monthly or the ad-free membership. It makes a really big difference. It just gives us buffer and breathing room until baseball comes back because uh, we want to be here for you when the site is, you know, coming live with opening day, which we hope will be sometime this summer when it's safe to do so. And in order to do that, there needs to be a fan graph. So we're asking for your help, what help you can give. We've had just an incredible response to this so far. A number of people who are already members have asked us how they can help further, which is just such a kind question. We're going to have a good answer for that later on this week. 
there's merch in the merch store. We're going to figure out when we're going to have sizing back for that. So if that was one of your questions, we'll have an update on that soon. But yeah, just if you're able to buy a membership, we'd ask that you please do so. And the nice thing about the ad-free membership is the site really does hum <laughs> in a nice way when there aren't ads on it. Ads are a necessary evil for our business model. But if you are a frequent user of the board, if you are really into the leaderboards, ad-free really does improve loading times and site responsiveness. So there is an improvement in your experience that comes with helping us out. So we hope you guys will consider that. All yeah. the folks. And the site already runs smoothly on mobile because it was just recently redesigned. And yeah. It just hums right along. Yeah. David and I both spoke with uh, your colleague, Brian Curtis, last week for a piece that mm-hmm. he did for The Ringer on sort of the effect that COVID-19 is having on sports writing now and unfortunately might have it in the future. And I said to Brian, you know, frustration is, of course, relative in this time. And we don't mean to put this on par with the the very real struggles that people are having right now. But one of the frustrating things about this is that, you know, we think we have a, a really great site and we have a site that was sort of ready to launch into opening day with new player pages and a bunch of new functionality coming down the road and a writing core that we're really proud of and tools that we think are genuinely useful to folks. And then there was a global pandemic. <laughs> like, what do you do? <laughs> So, uh, yeah, so we just have to try to bob and weave and weather this the best we can. And we're asking for people's help to do that. Oh, yeah. I would just note that uh, something that's been a really powerful thing for me to think about over the last 10 years or so is the idea that every dollar you spend is a vote for something that the most power that you have in a way in the world is that uh, you get to vote like many times every day for the world that you want to be available to you and other people. And unlike maybe the way that we sometimes vote on a Tuesday in November where we think, did our vote really matter? I think it's it's undoubtedly the case that what you spend money on really does have an influence on what is available to you and other people. And this is, you know, obviously this is a really hard time to ask for money, partly because there's so many places that money needs to go. And partly because I think everybody, whether their job has currently been influenced or not, uh, is nervous about what's going to happen to them and their own job in the next year or so. But, you know, the I think what I hear in this request is just a request that people kind of be thoughtful about where they want to spend their money right now and whether a dollar they spend is doing something useful and meaningful and promoting something that they want to have in their life right now. Yeah. And just in my own experience, I've never worked directly for Fangraphs, but I've been sort of Fangraphs adjacent for a long time. (laughs) And David Appleman just always treats his employees very well and treats readers very well and makes things available for free that elsewhere might not be available for free. And if he is asking for help, then you know that he needs it and the site needs it because he is not someone who, at least based in my experience, tries to uh, extract every penny for from this business. He treats people well. And so it'd be nice if uh, people would rally together and help support the site now. And I will say that I very much appreciated that in his announcement post about this, there was a graph like three paragraphs <laughs> down, which is very on brand. <laughs> so good job, yeah. David. Yeah, we can we can only ever be ourselves. And as a person who's gotten to work for David for a couple of years now, I can 
I can confirm your Fangraph's adjacent suspicion. He's a great person to work for, and he tries to treat people well, whether it's people who work for him or our community. And I've been very heartened to see the response from the community so far. You you folks are really amazing. You keep Fangraph's running, and I'm a little (laughs) verklempt at the response so far. So we really, really appreciate it. And I hope that we can continue the good momentum until we have an opening day and all get to rally around enjoying baseball again instead of something kind of grim like this. Yeah. And I will say that thanks in part to your efforts, the site is still really good. So it's not like uh, Meg is asking you to support the site because one day it will be good again. It's still good right now. If you go and go to Fangrass.com, there's still stuff that you will want to read, or at least there's stuff that I want to read, and not just the veterans that everyone knows, the the Jay Jaffe's and the Dan Zimborski's who've been doing this for years, and and David Lorela, etc. But guys like Craig Edwards and Ben Clemens, who are great and I learn something from them every time I read them and I'm confident that they would still be entertaining me and teaching me things if there were no baseball for a year which hopefully will not happen but just saying it's still good and it is sort of striking to me just how quickly traffic patterns and consumption has changed during this pandemic, not just at Fangraphs and and with sports and baseball specific sites, but just kind of across the board. Like when it comes to podcast audiences, I haven't actually checked to see how our downloads are doing because I don't know that there's anything we could do about it anyway if they're down. But from what I've read, it's kind of across the board. People are listening less and reading less and streaming more and playing video games more. And I've done those things too, but it's odd because because you know that traffic is always at its highest when people are at work, which is kind of paradoxical. Because you'd think <laughs> that that's when people are busy and wouldn't be able to read articles about baseball or listen to podcasts. But that is when people do those things to distract themselves from the drudgery of their work. And so to see this happen so quickly, I mean, we're just, uh, you know, baseball would have started last week. So we're not even a week into the baseball-less time. And yet things have changed really quickly. And it turns out that when people are at home, and granted, a lot of people are taking care of kids and trying to find work, and they may not actually have more free time, but a lot of people do because they're not commuting and maybe they're doing less work and you'd think that they'd be looking for ways to distract themselves. And yet that's not exactly how it works, or at least the the distractions or entertainments that they choose are not the same as they would be under normal circumstances. So it is strange and sort of disturbing. So everyone go please support Fangraphs and thanks to everyone who has done so. So far, there are a couple of nice threads in our Facebook group with people exhorting each other to give to Fangraphs and even some of our Patreon supporters who are already sort of indirectly contributing to Fangraphs have emailed to ask how they can do more and up their contribution. So that part at least is very heartening. Yeah, we really, we really appreciate it. I can't finally find myself in a position where I don't have sufficient words. You guys, you all have done it. You folks have done it. So we really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Good luck. All right. Thanks, Meg. Talk to you later this week. Sounds good. All right. So we continue. What shall we discuss? All right. Well, I've been uh, working on a project that involves uh, going back and reliving or, or, or revisiting, restudying, re, uh, familiarizing myself with uh, old World Series, uh, old being relative. I've been looking at the 1980s World Series in the last couple of days, and that has involved reading a lot of game stories of 1980s World Series games. And 
when we do our own postseason podcasts or our writing, we both uh, have commented in the past about what a huge percentage of the conversation tends to focus on like one or two managerial moves. The managerial moves really provide like half the conversation uh, right. after a, after a, a close postseason game. And what I forget, what do you remember your your explanation for for why that is? Why we're so into a single pitching move in the sixth inning of a game that involved you know like ninety ish plate appearances. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's generally true, that we focus on managerial moves even during the regular season to a greater extent than they actually have an impact on the game because managerial moves are just voluntary and premeditated. So you're saying, I've thought about it and I've considered all the context and this is what I think the best move to make right now would be. So if there's an obviously suboptimal move, then you can really let loose and blame the manager because, hey, he had time to think about this. This was his whole job. It's just an unforced error. Whereas with a player, you're trying to do something that requires incredible coordination. Someone is trying to actively prevent you from doing the thing that you want to do and so players can make mental mistakes too obviously but there's maybe more pressure on them they're trying to do this complex physical action at the same time that they're trying to make a decision and so if they let a ball go under their glove or something obviously that has led to sometimes lifelong condemnation too but if you just make a mistake as a player I think people will let it slide or at least not blame you as a person necessarily because, you know, you were trying your best, right? And everyone screws up sometimes. Whereas with a manager, I think we all can put ourselves in the place of the guy whose whole job is to sit there on the bench and make a decision. And everyone is managing along at home and saying, here's the reliever I would put in right now. I would pinch it for this guy right now. And so if the guy whose whole job it is doesn't do that thing and you were sitting there shouting at the TV to do that thing, then of course you're going to be quick to condemn that person, maybe not taking into account as much as you should that A, the decisions don't matter all that much. Usually you can make the right decision, it can backfire, you can make the wrong decision, and it can work out. So the average managerial move, even an important one really, doesn't swing your win expectancy by all that much. Plus, it's harder to manage in real time when the game is going on and you're considering all sorts of factors that the fan at home is not. And then there's also maybe some inside info that you might not have access to about so-and-so not feeling well or not having command of his curveball or having a nagging injury or whatever. So we probably give managers a harder time than we should, but you know that's why we focus on like lineup decisions and why would you bat that guy fifth or that guy third? And ultimately, it has almost no impact. Act, but it's just easy to criticize. Yeah, that, that's all. That all sounds exactly right. And and you're right. You you jogged my memory. One of the reasons that we talked about why we make such a big deal about it, as as though we're surprised that we're making such a big deal about it, is that we generally don't do that for a game in May. It it really is once the postseason starts that we we shift. And instead of thinking, oh well, a manager's job is mostly to rally his team and get them through the grind and manage a complex clubhouse and all these things. And so you know the the relatively small decisions about who to pinch hit in the seventh inning of a game in May. May might take a backseat to what he needs to do to motivate his players and keep them together and manage resources and all that. Well, when you get to game six of a series, 
maybe the the importance of these things has flipped and you assume that the players are all motivated uh but you really do need to make the most of every of every opportunity and i think also generally speaking postseason games tend to be a little lower scoring lower scoring tends to be closer closer tends to be more likely to be affected by a single move that you make anyway the point is that we make huge deal over strategic decisions in the postseason for various reasons and so while i've been looking through these old world series it has been interesting for me to see that well unsurprisingly Surprisingly, the conversations about those games the next day was also frequently about managerial moves uh-huh. and a little bit. Well, I guess also unsurprisingly, the situations that managers were being second guessed over were very different than they would be now. The game was different. And maybe while I'm unsurprised, not surprised that they are different, I have been in some cases surprised by what specifically they were. And I just thought it would be fun to talk about what managers were getting second-guessed for uh, in 1981 and what what sorts of challenging decisions they had. Because in a lot of cases, they didn't have to make challenging some of the challenging decisions that pitchers uh, that managers today have to, because there is not an expectation that they are going to do X, Y, or Z, whereas today we have an expectation that they will do or at least consider X, Y, and Z. On the other hand, back then, you know, alternate X, Y, and Z were on the table and they were expected to consider those things. Whereas Mm -hmm. a manager today rarely has to consider those things. And so I'm going to go over what managers in the World Series from 1980 to 1987 were dealing with. Okay. All right. That's prehistory. It is. Yeah. Although I'm, uh, I'm on, I'm on 1988 right now. So I'm now in the, in the common era. (laughs) So we're going to start with 1980. This was a World Series between the Phillies and the Royals. And one of my favorite, th- there were two big things going on in this series uh, that, that I want to point out. Uh, well, I guess neither one is all that big. I guess that's sort of the point of what we were just talking about is these things don't, they, they aren't, they don't seem that big, except in the moment they seem very big. So in game three, in the 10th inning, uh, Dan Quisenberry gives up a single to Bob Boone to lead off the inning, and then there's a sacrifice. You knew that sacrifice was coming. It's 1980. So they <laughs> sacrifice him over to second. And then Dan Quisenberry, who it was, I, I, you know, the, you need to understand. I mean, you know Dan Quisenberry was very good for some period of time. You need to understand that this is part of the period of time when he was very good. He finished eighth in MVP voting that year, fifth in Cy Young voting. He was a already a superstar closer and he intentionally walks Pete Rose okay to face Mike Schmidt he intentionally walks <laughs> Pete Rose to face Mike Schmidt who that year would win the MVP award <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> Twitter would not like that move today. No. So there's two things going on here. One is that they intentionally walked a guy to face the MVP, <laughs> the MVP of the league. Mike Schmidt hit 48 homers that year. He led the league in homers and RBIs. He was a four-time home run champ and arguably the best player in baseball at the time and arguably the best hitter in baseball at the time, intentionally walked him. The other thing that's going on there, though, that is interesting that I didn't realize was this common was closers used to intentionally walk a ton of of guys. And so in just in this game, you had Quisenberry intentionally walking Pete Rose, and you also the next inning had Tug McGraw 
intentionally walking George Brett, which makes a little bit more sense because Tug McGraw, uh, George Brett was also the MVP, but, you know, intentionally walking George Brett. And then the inning before, you had Dan Quisenberry intentionally walking Gary Maddox. And I tend to not think of closers as being expected to intentionally walk many batters. And so I did a query to see how common it was to have closers who saved at least 20 games and then intentionally walked 10 and I don't I think that the last one was like 2001 or something like that whereas it used to be extremely common like almost every closer would have uh, double digit intentionally walks and I'm not sure if that it was just a function of the, of managers generally intentionally walking a lot more and so all intentional walk stats are going to be affected by that or if it's that closers kind of I don't know. They they maybe paradoxically they were overvalued in some way, but also there was there was an appreciation that they were not shut down. They were not as you know that they were not actually as good as uh, the best starters, and so they had them intentionally walk a lot of batters in order to um, you know prevent them from getting hit hard. So there were twenty oh, so twenty saves and ten intentionally walks. There were five of those in 1983, five in 1982, five in 1980, four in 1986. So, you know, four or five pitchers a year would have that. And that's with fewer 20 save pitchers at the time. Whereas in the last decade, there was only one of those. Brandon Lyon for the Diamondbacks had one. And in the decade before that, the 2000s, there was also only one, Bobby Jenks. So the idea of having your closer intentionally walk batters has become much less common than it used to be. Uh And so anyway, they intentionally walked Pete Rose to face Mike Schmidt, and they kind of got lucky. Mike Schmidt lined out into a double play, and they ended up winning that game. Huh. All right. So I don't know what the equivalent would be. I guess the equivalent would be, well, I mean, you know, it's not like Pete Rose is is nothing either. And Pete Rose, a single probably wins the game. And so maybe you're thinking, well, he's a higher batting average guy. Although I'm looking, Pete Rose hit 282 that year, and Mike Schmidt hit 286. Of course, you get the platoon advantage because Pete Rose was a switch hitter. So I guess the uh, I, I was thinking maybe the equivalent would be if you intentionally walked Altuve to face Bregman. Although then you don't have the platoon advantage thing going on. Maybe if you maybe if you had a righty and you intentionally walked Otani to face Mike Trout. Anyway, it would be crazy. Yeah, yeah, and that's another thing I've written about specifically talking about managers getting criticized in the postseason is that it's gotten a little harder to do that with the same level of confidence that we used to do it with because now teams know things that we don't know and we're kind of conscious of that. And so back then in the 80s, if a manager intentionally walked someone to bring someone else up, you could be pretty confident, or at least now we could be pretty confident that they didn't have any really special advanced info that would lead them to think that one matchup was more advantageous than another. You know, if anything, they were probably looking at some tiny, small sample batter versus pitcher stats, or at that point, they may not even have had that on command. They may have just been going off intuition or gut feel or or memory. But nowadays, there's all sorts of analysis where teams will look at how does this hitter perform against not just this particular pitcher, but against a cohort of pitchers like this pitcher, you know, pitchers who throw that hard or have a similar release angle or, uh, you know, have the the same mix of, of breaking pitches, let's say 
comparable, similar pitchers determined using advanced data, and that can actually be pretty predictive. So there aren't that many times when it would show you something really incredibly revealing where you'd say, oh, this great hitter actually is no good against this guy. But there are certain times when a team might know something and managers have access to that stuff on their iPads or on a little cheat sheet or whatever that gives them projections for each matchup, each hitter versus each pitcher. And so it's a little hard to, with the same degree of confidence, and maybe we always were too confident about this sort of thing, but now it's kind of tough to say with absolute certainty that was the right move or the wrong move. So it's taken a little of the fun out of it, although the type of people who maybe are most vocal about criticizing managers are maybe not the most concerned about whether they're actually right to criticize them or not. It's just kind of taking out your frustration and, you know, asserting your own superiority. So that sort of thing, I guess, is still viable today. The other thing that happened in that series, by the way, was also involved Schmidt and not for some reason recognizing that. By the way, I think a good comp would be if if a lefty reliever intentionally walked Justin Turner to face Cody Bellinger last year. Uh-huh. I think I think the, the the variables hold up in that analogy. All right. So in a later game, tie game and or maybe they were up by one, the Royals were pitching up by one I think, and Mike Schmidt came up again and he got an infield hit off the glove of George Brett. And the reason that everybody including George Brett acknowledges that Schmidt got that hit is that Brett was playing on up on the grass expecting Schmidt to bunt. <laughs> Mike Schmidt, the 48 home run MVP, they were expecting him to bunt. Now, in their defense, Mike Schmidt had bunted for a hit earlier in that series and liked to bunt, apparently, at that period in his life. He liked to bunt for hits, so uh, he sometimes had to. And so George Brett didn't always play up on him, but in that moment, he became convinced that this was a moment that Schmidt might bunt. And so he played way up. Schmidt later said he had no intention whatsoever. Hit one to George Brett's left. Brett got a glove on it with a dive, but couldn't handle it. And that led to a a big ninth inning rally as a lead turned into a deficit and a game turned. All right. The uh, next one, 1981. Um, The big one here, we might have talked about this one. This one felt sort of familiar to me, but we might not have. It might have been just a different start that was similar and involved the same pitcher. So uh, game three, Fernando Valenzuela, rookie Fernando Valenzuela, a uh, 20-year-old rookie, Fernando Valenzuela, is pitching. And he's, you know, it's not his best start, but he gives up a couple runs early. And then he gives up, an, well, he actually gives up four runs in the first three innings. But they leave him in there, and he settles down. And he gets in a pretty gr- good little groove. But he's he's wild, as, as maybe he sometimes was. And he ends up throwing 140 is uh, seven pitches in a complete game as a 20-year-old rookie. That's not even what I'm talking about here, though. What's amazing to me is that he was allowed to finish this game. Pitch count aside, the situations where he was allowed as a rookie with a high pitch count to stay in this game. So he's leading 5-4. So this is not like his. he's not throwing a shutout. He's not dominating. He's just a pitcher having an, you know, a good pitcher having a, a, a slightly off day. So... Up by one. By the way, this is game three, so they're down two games to none. If they lose this game, they're done. This is a must-win, 100% must-win game. Up by one. Eighth inning, Fernando Valenzuela gives up a leadoff single. Oh, goodness. 
You <laughs> might want to pull him there. The tying run is on base, okay? Top of the order, in fact, is looming. I think we're at the... Uh, we are at, uh, that was the number seven hitter. So you've got the number eight hitter coming up, and then you've got a pinch hitter, and then you've got the top of the Yankees order coming up. All right, so they leave him out there, gives up another single. Okay, <laughs> so now there's two on and nobody out in the eighth inning of a one-run must-win game, and they leave him out. And <laughs> Bobby Mercer pinch hits. Bobby Mercer bunts into a double play. <laughs> <laughs> and Valenzuela gets out of it. All right. Well, Just every team was actively trying to lose at all times. Yes. Uh, so then the bottom of the eighth, leadoff hit. Fernando Valenzuela comes up. He's only up by one run at this point, and he's thrown 140 pitches, and he's walked seven batters, and they let him hit for himself. And he grounds into a fielder's choice. And now he has to run the bases. <laughs> they let him run the bases. He doesn't get anywhere. They don't score. Send him out to the bottom of the ninth, where it's the 2-3-4 hitter in the Yankees lineup, all right-handed. And they send out the lefty Fernando Valenzuela to face those guys. And he, he does it. He finishes the complete game. He wins the game. I mean, it's, it is incredible. So this is not, he never faced the go-ahead run in the ninth. But, you know, the, he faced close to the go-ahead run in the ninth. And uh, this just so happens to be a query that Lucas Apostolares had, had been doing at Baseball Prospectus. And so uh, he shared with me the spreadsheet. And so if you look at starts where a pitcher faces the winning run in the ninth inning, those still occasionally happen. There were six of them last year, including our old friend Noah Syndergaard, Noah Syndergaard's true win. Also Madison Bumgarner. That's why I started to say Noah Syndergaardner. I was looking <laughs> at a spreadsheet where those two names were right next to each other. So there were six last year. In the year that Fernando Valenzuela had this outing, well, that was a strike-shortened year, and so it's going to be low. But all the same, in the strike-shortened year, there were 114. The year before that, there were 231 starts when the starting pitcher faced the go-ahead run in the ninth inning, which it's almost impossible to to think of a situation where the starting pitcher would face the go-ahead run in the ninth inning at this point. You basically have to have an ace-level pitcher, and in fact, uh, the six pitchers who did it this year, Darvish, Verlander, Bumgarner, Bueller, Syndergaard, and then Marco Gonzalez. And probably you need to have a tie game because if you have a lead and the pitcher allows a runner on, then you it's you imagine the manager's going to come out and get him. Uh, but a tie game, maybe if he has a low pitch count, then you'll leave him out there. And he's probably only going to get one batter maybe uh, where he gets a chance to face that batter. So like you, Darvish was one of these six. And I was looking at the start that you, Darvish, had this year where he did it. And it really was like I couldn't believe that Darvish had been allowed to do it. He came out in the, his last start of the year for the ninth inning. It was a... Two to one lead that he had. He gave up a leadoff triple. And I was sort of shocked looking at this box score that he was allowed to stay in. Then he gives up a sack fly, a single, a stolen base, a double, and now the lead is gone. And you think, wow, that's like a box score out of 1985. And in fact, it is. That's that was common in 1985. You just left Fernando Valenzuela out there. And again, this goes back to what I was saying about the other thing. You it's weird because the the closers 
the the ace closer was such a part of strategy at that point like the ace closer was fairly new they were high paid every team wanted one they were used very aggressively the same time though the ace closer was sort of seen as not as good as the starter and so tommy lasorda after this game says fernando valenzuela is my best closer and so he just left him out there uh he had a closer but he'd rather go with valenzuela at 150 pitches Yeah, I mean, I guess in fairness to the Dodgers, Valenzuela in 81 was Rookie of the Year, Cy Young winner, absolute phenomenon, drawing huge crowds wherever he went, especially at home. So if you were going to leave someone in, that would be the guy, I guess, despite his age. So there's that. And not that they were. He threw eight shutouts that year. Yeah. Strike shortened year, eight complete game shutouts in a strike shortened year, which is incredible. Not that they were looking at times through the order splits at that point, but he was better his third time through the order that year than he was his first time through the order. He allowed a 387 OPS his fourth time through the order and later that year. So when they did decide to let him go long, he really rewarded them for that decision. So you can see why that happened, even though it shouldn't have happened. I mean, just for safety's sake, but also probably for trying to win the games sake yeah and it worked they won that game mm-hmm. um, and, and, and they we won were the series. in fairness to to those dodgers we were having this same complaint about teams and managers up until what three years ago or so something like that i mean within the lifetime of the show we were regularly criticizing managers for leaving starters in too long in the playoffs and not observing the times through the order effect and not flipping the switch when it went from the regular season to the postseason continuing to manage with the same level of urgency or lack of urgency and so it's really only recently that some of these mistakes at least have actually been corrected Yeah, with the Valenzuela start, what really strikes me is just that how many base runners he was allowing the whole time. You you would not have, I don't think you would have watched it and thought he is the best pitcher in the world and we're going to stick with him because no one's touching him. He he allowed 16 base runners in that game. He walked seven. That's a lot of walks. All right, 1982 Brewers and Cardinals. And the this I'm I'm sort of speculating here. All right, so Raleigh Fingers was the ace closer that year for the for the Brewers. And in the eighth inning, with the score tied, the Cardinals loaded the bases with one out and did not bring in Raleigh Fingers. Now, so Harvey Keene after the game said, Yes, Raleigh was well enough to pitch, and no, I didn't consider using him. I've used Raleigh Fingers when we're ahead not in tie situations. So Raleigh Fingers, I'm freezing on this for one reason. I don't think Raleigh Fingers was actually well enough to pitch. Raleigh had been injured. He he had not been pitching in the postseason. He would not go on to pitch at all in the postseason, even in later save situations. And he would not pitch at all the next year. He would have surgery. And so I think that Harvey Keene was lying about why he didn't use Raleigh Fingers. I I don't think he wanted to give away that Fingers was unavailable. And so he he kept it a secret and he made up this story about only using him with the lead in save situations and not using him in a tie. And I, I have not looked deeply into this, but I'm here going to speculate wildly that this is the origin of not using your closer in a tie game is that <laughs> Harvey Keen made that made it up right then and there as a as fake logic and other managers latched onto it and thought we can't use our closer in a tie game and they never did again. 
Uh-huh. And it was all because of a lie that Harvey Keen was telling. Anyway, he did not use Raleigh fingers that day or any other day. The other interesting thing that happened in this game, uh, in this series, was game six. The Cardinals won a blowout. They won something like 13 to one. And their starting pitcher uh, was a rookie at that point named John Stuper. And John Stuper threw a complete game in that 13 to one game, which is not that notable, except for one thing the game was twice delayed by rain for a total of nearly three hours. And so John Stuper, rookie, threw a five and a half hour complete game. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> uh, just kept putting him back out there. How many pitches do you think he threw in the, in the bullpen? Oh, man. Did you see if, like, there was criticism of this? I no. Mean, no, it was like, it, it was not, not, none at all. None at all. Wasn't even mentioned. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it makes me wonder, like, what we are criticizing or failing to criticize now that 30 years in the future we'll look back and think, boy, were we dumb not to notice that at the time. I would guess that whatever mistakes are, are being made now are not nearly as egregious or as actively unsafe as the ones they were making then. I'd like to think that we've gotten a little bit smarter. But still, you do kind of wonder what are we not <laughs> looking at right now that future podcast hosts or us on episode 10,000 or whatever will <laughs> look back and rue those mistakes. Yeah, I was wondering that too. And I I don't know if, uh, I, you know, I don't, it, it will be interesting to know how the future regards us. And I'm perfectly happy if this is what they end up second guessing 30 years from now, that I'm perfectly happy to be second guessed. But I feel like what it will probably be, and I don't have specifics in mind, but that there are strategies that are not currently in use because there is deference to player ego and player wishes and players claims of um, you know needing to be comfortable and needing to be like like sort of there are things where players would say that the strategy would unnerve them or not take into account their uh, lived experiences as players and so we accept that that those strategies are not going to be used as aggressively and I'm happy. I think that's good. I, like, I, I think that the state that we're in right now, the balance between listening to players when they tell us what they need to be comfortable and safe and what the technically optimal strategy is, is pretty good right now. And I, it would not surprise me if in 30 years our descendants are criticizing and laughing at us for not being more ruthless in our strategy, <laughs> if that makes sense. That yeah. There, that there will be a lot more... Maybe that there will be more embarrassing of players in the future, that it will not be that a player's pride will not be considered part of the of the decision making process. That's kind of what I think. That's what I think. I think in 30 years that they're going to just all be monsters and they're going to like <laughs> laugh at the notion that a player's pride has any role to 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 consider in the. Huh. The calculus. That's yeah. so. That's my. That's my. I'm answer. sure a lot of old school baseball people would think we we've already reached that point, but yeah, maybe there's more to go. Speaking of players' pride, so 1983 is the uh, Phillies and the Orioles, and in Game Three, the Phillies benched their number two hitter, their first baseman and number two hitter. And you know he must be good because he bats the top of the lineup and he's a first baseman, and he's Pete Rose. He's the hit king, Pete Rose. And so they benched him because he'd been slumping. And Pete Rose got very mad. This was a big, this was a controversy for 24 hours because Pete Rose did not take it silently. He said, I'm hurt and embarrassed. 
Rose said, looking both hurt and embarrassed. There are 65,000 people in this stadium tonight, and the two most surprised and astounded people are Pete Rose and Tony Perez, who took his spot in the lineup. And I don't think that's the way baseball should even be played. He was hurt even more later when Owens sent him in to pinch hit in the ninth inning. He grounded out. Now, the next day he played. So this is uh, this happens every once in a while. There was the A-Rod situation where uh, the Yankees benched A-Rod for Raul Abanez a few years ago, and it's shocking, you know, like when a yeah. star gets shocked in the postseason. Uh, and Pete Rose. Yeah, well, that one, and maybe you're about to say this is I'm similar. I'm about to but, say it. <laughs> okay, <laughs> well, I was going to say that one was shocking, not just because of the ego that was offended, but also because it just seemed like an overreaction and a, a small sample sort of mistake at the time. Okay, so I'm going to say the opposite here. Ah, okay. <laughs> it was shocking because of the ego. As for the small sample, Pete Rose that year. <sighs> Pete Rose that year hit 245, 316, 286. <laughs> yeah. He slugged 286. As a first baseman. <laughs> yeah. His his OPS plus was only slightly, slightly higher than 68. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You're not gonna say it. So he uh he got benched, but I mean, wow, it really is kind of wild to just look at the end of Pete Rose's career mm-hmm. and how much he was playing on good teams even in the middle of the lineup at a power position while putting up basically sub replacement offense yeah. not coincidentally he was managing those teams <laughs> not yeah although not the Phillies that year <laughs> no uh, not yet, but, yeah guess, later not on 84 yeah Pete Rose who got benched for game three but only game three they did bring him back because he was too valuable had negative 2.1 war that year <laughs> Oof. All right, so that's 1983, Pete Rose. There was also a great moment in that series where the Orioles managed to pinch hit four batters in a row, which is, um, I think, mathematically impossible in the modern game, although maybe not. Maybe it won't be this year. So that was probably pretty fun, and it worked. They, they scored a bunch of runs that inning. The pinch hitters did their job. And All right, so yeah, four pinch hitters in a row. Let's go to 1984. This one, I, I guess, is kind of uh, repeating about closers intentionally walking batters but this is really an amazing moment in a postseason game where the tigers were playing the padres they were up by one in the eighth inning trying to clinch stadium is raucous going crazy through a a sequence the tigers end up with runners on second and third with one out and goose gossage is on the mound kirk gibson is coming to the plate and kirk gibson was an mvp candidate at the time left-handed batter against the right-hander gossage the on-deck hitter was Lance Parrish, right-handed batter, not nearly as good as Gibson. And so the Padres manager signals for an intentional walk, which in this case, again, we have a closer intentionally walking, but I think this one makes a lot more sense. And Goose Gossage gets the gets the news, and he says, nuh-uh, I don't want it. And so he actually calls manager Dick Williams out from the dugout. Dick Williams comes out to the mound. They talk. They debate. They, they argue and reason. And Dick Williams says, okay, go ahead and pitch to him. So the pitcher actually talked the manager out of the intentional walk. Huh. And on the second pitch, Gibson homered. And, and, and Gossage never quite lived it down. And so I don't really even know what the strategy, I guess the strategy there is uh, uh, that we're talking about or the manager decision there is kind of the Matt Harvey in the 2015 World Series thing, right? Where the manager yeah. had a plan and the player who is born and bred to be extremely confident, extremely aggressive, to believe that he can get anybody 
out at any time, to never back down from a challenge, to never decline a challenge, was allowed to talk the manager out of that strategy. And uh, and just like with Matt Harvey in the 2015 World Series, uh, it totally backfired. And Gossage gave up the home run and said, I feel responsible for the game. Yeah. If you were a manager, would you ever even ask how you feeling or what do you want to do? Well, I mean, look, there's two questions there. One is if you were the manager, would you ever incorporate that data into your decision making? Yeah. The other is would you would you ever ask and make the person mm-hmm. feel heard? And I would I think that I would definitely would let the player feel heard in whatever way you need to do that. In a situation like that, uh, yeah. I I mean, what's the question? The question, (laughs) there's again, there's different questions here. One question is, what do you think? What do you want to do? What do you think we should do? And in that sense, maybe you could say you're the manager. You're the one who's supposed to decide what you're, what you should do, what, what this, what the strategy should be. But you also do want to know in some cases how the player feels. And so the question is, can you get an honest answer from the player? Right. Will the player tell you honestly whether he's he's able to go out there? And that's tough. Yeah, it'd be very valuable information if you actually knew how the player was feeling, but you just can't ever be sure. Maybe if you know the guy really well and you've been managing him for a while and you can actually tell when he's being honest or maybe he would be open and honest about it. It seems like that would be a minority of pitchers who would actually own up to being tired at that point. And then you get weird situations like the Rich Hill, Dave Roberts episode where Rich Hill seemed to suggest that he was maybe feeling a little fatigued and that uh, Roberts could pull him if he got in any trouble. But then there was miscommunication about whether he actually wanted to be pulled and that just worked out poorly for the Dodgers. But yeah, if you could use some of the data that's available now like with Hawkeye where you can actually see the arm angle of the pitcher or maybe analyze his mechanics in real time and his stuff and see if it's dropping off at all and I don't know whether someone in the dugout would have access to that information because at least for now you're not supposed to communicate with the analysts who would be looking at that but if you could look at that that would be very valuable information to have it's just a question of whether you're actually going to get a straight answer from the player and most of the time you're probably not this is unrelated i'm not going to talk about this much but in 1986 game six of the 1986 world series roger clemens was pitching that game and he pitched he threw seven innings and then they pinch hit for him in the top of the eighth and i was reading an article from much later where roger clemens claims that he didn't want to get pinch hit for and was wanted to stay in and the manager of the red sox that year who i believe was john mcnamara is that right? Said that Clemens, quote, begged out of the huh. game. And so that's a an odd situation, too, where you have, uh, I mean, in a way, if you're just going to ask so that you can throw him under the bus <laughs> for, your, yeah. for the decision later, that's probably not the best way yeah. to do it. But on the other hand, if Clemens is throwing you under the bus, mm-hmm. then, ah. all right, 1985, Let's see. What do I have for 1985? This was the Royals and the Cardinals. Oh my goodness, this one's nuts. The Royals were leading two to nothing going to the ninth inning, and Charlie Liebrandt was the starter. And again, Dan Quisenberry was the closer. And at this point, Dan Quisenberry had I think finished top five in Cy Young voting four years in a row, top three in Cy Young voting four years in a row, third, second, second, third, and they did not use Dan Quisenberry in the ninth inning up by two 
to start the inning. And then as run after run scored, they still didn't use Dan Quisenberry. They left Charlie Liebrand out there to allow four runs in the ninth inning and lose the game. Willie Wilson, the Royal center fielder, was not kind to the decision after the fact. He said, on the record, anybody who knows anything about baseball knows what we should have done. So there's that. And then a few innings later, a few games later, I should say, they were in a fairly similar situation. This time it was the eighth inning, and Charlie Liebrandt was again pitching very well and again had, well, I guess this was a tie game, 0-0. And Liebrandt comes up in the eighth inning with two on and two out they let him hit for himself and he strikes out inning over ball game stays tied 0-0 and then the very next half inning with Liebrandt in the game the Cardinals in a like sort of almost too obvious storytelling uh, moment get the exact same situation two on two out in a 0-0 tie and the pitcher coming up and this time, they, the Cardinals do pinch hit for the starting pitcher, who also had a shutout going and had also thrown seven innings complete. They pinch hit for him. The pinch hitter gets a single off Charlie Liebrandt, and the Cardinals end up going ahead. So huh. that is a play. Uh, that They just really like Charlie Liebrandt in the, in the game <laughs> yeah, at that point. I guess so. All right, and then last one, 1986. I don't, I don't want to talk about 1986 particularly. <laughs> 1987 was the series of pitchers pitching on short rest, and it became a, a deal because Murray Chaz noted that the pitchers who were pitching on three days rest had all been quite bad, and the pitchers who'd been pitching on four days rest had all been quite good. So Murray Chaz wrote an analysis of this, and as he put it, in the six games of the series, six starters worked on three days rest, and six pitched with four days of rest or more. The well-rested starters have registered three victories and one defeat, have compiled a 2.60 ERA, and have allowed an average of nine base runners per nine innings. The not-so-well-rested starters have one victory, four losses, and an 8.56 ERA. They have permitted an average of 17 base runners per nine innings. So this was the 87 World Series, and, and in reading about the previous six World Series, there were various pitchers going on short rest throughout those series, and I did not see any controversy over it in any of those. It would be noted that a pitcher had, you know, thrown a complete game on short rest or that he was, you know, coming back after three days rest, but it wasn't controversial. It wasn't seen as even something that, that there was much doubt over. If it was your ace and you needed him back there uh, for the win, you just did it. So I, I don't know if this series inaugurated the tradition of second-guessing that decision, which is, I think, generally proven not to be a great decision to do. But it turned out to be a, a really important factor in, because as the series went to Game 7, the Twins went to Frank Viola, their ace, one of their aces, and he was starting on short rest. The Cardinals manager, Whitey Herzog, could have gone to Danny Cox on short rest, but instead he chose to go with Joe McGrain, who had started a week earlier and, and had not pitched since, and so he was fully rested. So you really have this situation where both um, where the managers made polar opposite decisions based on the situation and the, I don't know, maybe the data. And so Viola ends up pitching extremely well despite being on short rest, and so the Twins are justified in theirs. The Cardinals pitcher Joe McGrain also pitched pretty well, but... 
remember they would remember how he didn't go to Danny Cox, his 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 best pitcher because Danny Cox was on short rest. Uh-huh. Well, he pulls Joe McGrain in the fifth inning and brings in Danny Cox. <laughs> <laughs> and so Danny Cox, this is what Danny Cox does. This is his line that day. Uh, his the, the the play log for him. Kirby Puckett double, Gary Gaetti walk, Puckett caught stealing. Okay, Danny Cox gets an out. Don Baylor single, Gaetti out at home. So Danny Cox gets an out. So he's faced three batters. They all reach. He gets two gift outs. Next inning, Tom Bernanski walk, Kent Herbeck walk, and Danny Cox leaves. So he faces five batters. Doesn't technically get any of them out. And the Cardinals end up. They they had a two to one lead when they pulled Joe McGrain, and they leave with what will ultimately be the winning run on base. Wow. <laughs> Boy, they weren't very good at, at baseball in those days. <laughs> in, in some ways, they were really, it was only, you know, 120 years old at that point. They were still figuring it out. <laughs> it's really sort of shocking just the, the pace of change and I guess improvement or optimization in managing just I mean things were still happening in the 80s or even the 90s that had happened for all of baseball history and then all of a sudden they sort of stopped happening and all these things went away sack bunts and intentional walks and hit and runs to some extent and pitch outs and leaving pitchers in forever these things were part of baseball to varying extents for most of its history and then just uh you know within the blink of an eye in baseball standards they all kind of just went away and it was really a product of you know different types of people running teams and not players running teams who were used to things working that way and then them hiring people who were not going to do things that way and it really does make you wonder like we've talked about this before I think but the idea of how good would your team be if you could go back right now and be the GM of a team in the 20s or the 40s or the 60s or whatever just a, a regular person knowing what we know now how good would we be at running a baseball team? And I think in a lot of ways, we'd still be pretty bad at it. And I think in general, the greatest advances when it comes to winning more games have been in player evaluation and then player development more recently. So finding out which players are the best, going to get those players, making players better. I think those are where the greatest gains have come. And yet when you recount all of these very simple and and possibly costly errors that were really routine, I mean, you're just reading the World Series ones, but this was happening all the time. It really makes you wonder if you just went back and didn't manage that way, if you just managed the way that a team today manages with the same personnel and everything, how much better would you be? Would that be enough of an advantage to just go from average team to good team or bad team to average team at least? It's like the baseball analyst Phil Birnbaum once wrote, you gain more by not being stupid than you do by being smart. Yeah, the hardest thing I think for me to, uh, if I went back and tried to manage these teams, is that I have a very hard time looking at these players and figuring out which pitchers were actually good because none of them was really striking anybody out. (laughs) And they were all walking a bunch of guys. And so you have all these, like you have these opening day starters who had, like Danny Cox, for instance, was the Cardinals ace, I think, at that point. He struck out 4.6 batters per nine and walked 3.2 batters per nine. And 
I just, in my head, don't really have a way of making those numbers into a good pitcher. I'm so used to the types of pitching that we have now that I don't even know what I would look for if I were exposed to a Danny Cox-type pitching line and been told to figure out whether he was better than Joe McGrain. Uh-huh. And so I'm constantly looking at like some pitcher who was the staff ace, and I'm clicking over to see how good he was that year, and it's like... 4.8 strikeouts per nine, <laughs> 3.9 walks per nine, 2.12 ERA. <laughs> like, where is the? Where are these outs coming from? Of course, it made sense at the time, and they hardly ever allowed home runs. Um, and there were a lot of things going on, and a lot of those walk rates were severely goosed by intentional walks, and yeah. probably by a lot of semi-intentional walks. But it's just hard for me to to look at the pitchers and see a. Like, I don't have my my easy heuristics, you know? Yeah, right. That's a good point. And we wouldn't have the data at our disposal that we do now if we just went back in time. We'd have to suffice with what they had at the time. I guess we'd be able to discount certain things and look at certain things that maybe they were ignoring then, but you didn't have baseball reference or fan graphs and WRC plus or projections or anything. So you'd have to calculate that stuff yourself or figure it out on your own. And a lot of the data that goes into the stats that we have now was just not being collected then, obviously not in automated form, but not even in manual stringer assisted form. So you'd be sort of flying blind to an extent too. Yeah. Yep. All right. Anyway, I'll uh, let you know what I find out about 1989 and and so on. (laughs) All right. We got a good amount of feedback to our discussion last time about baseball in the age of social distancing. Meg and I discussed whether and how baseball could be played while ensuring a minimum of six feet distance between players and other personnel. Here's one good email we got from listener Brennan, who came up with two ways to possibly fix baseball, quote unquote, during the COVID pandemic. Number one, different parallel bases for runners and fielders. So this is something Meg and I were talking about, how you would handle force outs. And Brennan says, obviously, This would be a hot mess, but potentially an entertaining one. Robot umps or Hawkeye would monitor the arrival of the ball and runner to parallel bases and would automatically signal the result of the play using a light or sound visible to everyone on the field of play. I presume we'd want to give the base runners the longer of the two base paths, as all ties would go to the runner in the scenario. Alternatively, we could switch each inning which team used the outer bases. A variety of problems come to mind, but again, is this better than no baseball? I think so. So this would be sort of like the extra runner's bag in softball, except instead of having that second bag attached to the main bag, it would just be six feet apart. Brennan's other point here is scrap baseball, do derby. Ben and Sam's discussion of home run derby as a sport last season now seems oddly prescient. How does derby become a sport? It suits up and subs in for baseball during a pandemic. So we have a traveling MLB Derby League broadcasting from great iconic American sites, the Grand Canyon, the Gateway Arch in St. Louis, the Capitol Mall, Mount Rushmore, etc. It could be structured as an ongoing points-based league or an elimination tournament or ideally both a regular season followed by a postseason. If we want to really go for the video game gusto, each site could have a special rule emphasizing the unique geography or history of the location, providing bonus points. Is this baseball? No. Is this better than not having baseball? Definitely. 
Thank you, Brennan. And for further consideration of baseball in a social distancing world, you can head over to Fangraphs, where Ben Clemens did a whole post about what that could possibly look like. All right, that will do it for today. Thanks for listening, and thanks again for supporting Effectively Wild and Fangraphs. I see that some of you have signed up to support us on Patreon or have upped their existing contributions. That definitely helps because Fangraphs does pay for the podcast hosting costs, as well as Dylan Higgins's editing assistance. And of course, some of the proceeds of our Patreon go to Meg, who has been financially affected by the cutbacks. So we thank you again, and you can also support Fangraphs directly by purchasing a membership. You can go get an Effectively Wild t-shirt from the Fangraphs store if you're interested, as long as supplies last. There's a link to that merch at the bottom of the episode summary of every episode of Effectively Wild. And I know that a lot of members of the Fangraphs staff have been very touched by the support that people have shown so far. Fangrass is just invaluable to the lives of so many of us. So many great writers are currently there or have gotten their starts there. It's a wonderful oasis on the internet, and they're very happy to have your help to keep it that way. The latest sign for me that things have changed just showed up this morning right before we started to record. For those who don't know, I live in New York, very close to the Hudson River, kind of overlooking the Midtown docks where the cruise ships typically come in and go out. And you may even hear them sometimes on this podcast because they will very rudely interrupt and blow their horns when they're coming in or leaving. And if it's a Disney cruise ship, it will sound the whole When You Wish Upon a Star Disney theme song with no warning. For obvious reasons, those cruise ships have not been coming and going the way that they normally would in the past couple weeks. Much to the dismay, I would imagine, of twins reliever Zach Littell, cruise ship enthusiast who we discussed recently. So those docks have been empty for a while now, and there's not been the usual nautical traffic there. But just this morning, in one of those berths where a cruise ship usually goes, the Navy hospital ship Comfort arrived just a giant ship, which some of you may have heard Trump describe as the big white ships with the red cross on the side. That's pretty accurate. Fact check true. So that giant ship with a thousand hospital beds is parked right outside my apartment. I can see it from my window as I record this podcast, or I could if I didn't put the shades down to cut down on the echo in the room. So that's just a constant reminder that even though I personally have been lucky thus far, and neither my health nor my employment has been directly affected by the pandemic to this point, many other people, particularly in my area, have been hit hard, and some of them are on that ship, hopefully getting some comfort and I I'm reminded of that every time I look out the window as I work, and that just makes me more grateful for the people who have shown their support for the podcast. So again, you can go to patreon.com slash effectively wild. I will also provide the link on the episode summary to where you can sign up for a Fangraphs membership, and the following people have just signed up or upgraded their Patreon memberships for the show. Zach Wad, Michael Rosen, Andrew Fraker, Sean Muir, and Timothy Cullen. Thanks to all of you. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash Effectively Wild. You can rate, review, and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and other podcast platforms. Keep your questions and comments for me and Sam and Meg coming via email at podcast.fangrass.com or via the Patreon messaging system if you are a supporter. Thanks to the aforementioned Dylan Higgins for his editing assistance. If you're looking for reading material, paperback edition of my book, The MVP Machine, How Baseball's New Nonconformists Are Using Data to Build Better Players, comes out next week, April 7th. It is an expanded edition with a new afterword that was not in the hardcover copy, so you can pre-order that now if you're so inclined. So we'll be back with another episode a little later this week. Talk to you soon. <laughs>